Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is targeted towards allergists and practicing clinicians, but to be honest, the information we're going to discuss today is also extremely pertinent to families with school-aged children and school personnel as well, and I think you'll find, you'll find this very useful. Today's guest is Dr. Alice Hoyt. Dr. Hoyt is the founder of the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy, located in Materi, Louisiana. Dr. Hoyt is an active member of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and was the inaugural recipient of the Quad AI Educator Development Award in 2020. Most recently, she serves as a faculty member and content author for the online CME course titled, How and Why to Prescribe Stock Epinephrine to Schools and Early Childhood Centers, which makes her the perfect guest for today's episode. Dr. Hoyt, thank you so much for taking time to join us and welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. I think this is going to be a great conversation and very useful for our listeners. Uh, you know, you and I, uh, for the audience, for our listeners, you and I know each other and, and we share many similar passions with the work that we do. And I'm excited to talk about stock epinephrine, but I'd really like to start by having you discuss why you became interested in being an allergist and then pivot more towards what inspired you to focus your career on food allergy. Absolutely. So I think hindsight's really 2020, but you know, growing up in Southeast Louisiana, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' farm, and uh, my my grandmother was a great cook and um, grew wonderful uh, fruits and veggies. And just learning all about nature and foods and how foods interact with our bodies was always important from from a young age. Eating, you know, eating healthy. And so my degree was in nutrition because I was just always fascinated by by how foods interact with our bodies. Um, and Knowing that I wanted to go to medical school, I wanted to have a degree that that was very, very relevant to some of the issues of the day. And definitely in the South, we have issues with obesity and and all the all the food associated things. Right. So going to med school, um, did internal medicine and pediatrics re combined residency and was just really fascinated by the immune system and how our bodies and the outside world engage. Um, and one of my mentors recommended I check out allergy and immunology. And, you know, I, I, I did a few, few days on the service and started looking at Jackie, Jackie in practice. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so I was blessed to match at a wonderful program, Wahoo Wah UVA, um, and mm -hmm. did an additional year at UVA and just knew when I was there that food allergy is absolutely where I want to focus all my efforts. And I am blessed because that is what I do now, all food allergy, all the time. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So if you had to think back to the time on the farm, what's, what's the one food that you think about that uh, makes you salivate? What was the best thing that you would eat when, when it was nice and fresh? Oh, oh heaven. So um, strawberries, Ponchatoula is the strawberry capital of the world. And my grandmother grew the most amazing strawberries. So strawberries and her strawberry <gasps> <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Now now I'm hungry. Oh boy. Are you okay. salivating now? Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this sounds really good. <laughs> um, you know, when it people won listen blue to ribbons this, at the fair, it, it, it's good stuff. Your grandmother's strawberries, like her specific strawberries, won blue ribbons? Her strawberries, making her strawberry pie, she, oh yeah, blue ribbons, multiple. Oh my gosh. Okay. My grandmother was a boss. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. It makes me want to visit. <laughs> um, when when people listen to this uh, podcast, it's going to be a little bit later uh, than the Food Allergy Awareness Week, but that's actually when we're recording it. We're in the middle of that right mm -hmm. now. Uh, what does this week mean to you? And what message do you think we need to send to the general public surrounding food allergies? That's a great question, Dave. And I was posed this earlier because there is a lot of media right now around food allergies because it is Food Allergy Awareness Week. And what it really means is, to me, it's sort of two parts. If you have a food allergy or if you have a, a kiddo with food allergy, then this is really a week to feel like, okay, the world is listening. When other times, sometimes our families I know feel like, are you hearing me? Do you, do you see that my child has this? Um, and so this is a week where they can take heart in knowing like, yes, there is a whole week. People people are mm -hmm. aware. People are listening. And then for people who don't have food allergies, I think it's such an important time for them to look to their friends and family who do have food allergies and say, you know, how do you use that auto injector? Or, you know, not all food allergies are anaphylactic, meaning EOE and FPIs, right? Asking those family members, you know, Tell me a little bit more about this. I'm hearing all this about food allergy awareness. Like, what does that really mean to you? And ultimately providing an opportunity for engagement um, between people with and without food allergies. Oh, I love that. And I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's it's funny when I talk to all the patients I have or parents and caregivers of children with food allergies, like they don't mind when people ask them questions. They love it. Um, they right. love the opportunity right. to discuss what it's like. Yeah, that's great. Yes, yes. Well, pivoting to the, the topic of today's podcast, you know, over the past decade, just about every state within the United States has adopted either voluntary or mandatory stock epinephrine legislation for schools and early childhood centers. Why was this movement started in the first place and why do you think it's important? That's such a good question. So why was it started? It was started because food allergy is, it exists, first of all. Um, I know we're speaking mostly to allergists right now, so I don't really need to like drive that point home. Um, it is life-threatening, also a, a point I don't really have to drive home, but those are two points that were not very well known even just maybe 10 years ago. And so having the legislation that encourages or requires schools to be prepared for anaphylaxis, meaning having epinephrine auto-injectors, having their staff trained, that legislation really helps push push the ball forward or throw the ball whatever sports analogy you want to use right to get our schools more prepared to manage this medical emergency because it's not a match, matter of if it's a matter of when a school is going to have a child or a teenager have an anaphylactic reaction at school and so in 2013 there was federal legislation that encourages schools to adopt stock epi but states were doing this even before 2013 and unfortunately some of the state legislation came from children dying in schools because schools were afraid to have the auto injectors. And so, you know, that's so fascinating, especially I think for some of the younger allergists listening that, wow, that was even like a, a, a thought that, oh, we might get in trouble if we have this auto injector. Whereas now the legislation really across the country is saying 
to err on the side of caution is to administer stock epi when you think someone is having anaphylaxis. So really the pendulum has swung and that is why now all states except Hawaii have legislation that either require schools to have stock epinephrine or encourage, encourages them slash permits them to have stock epinephrine. Mm-hmm. And if I recall, it wasn't just students, right? It was, and we're talking about adults that are on the school campus, you know, from, you know, bee stings and hymenopterin, venom right. anaphylaxis and things like that as well, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, anybody, right? We all know that anybody can have an allergic reaction. Of course, in, in kiddos, sometimes they're, they're having their first reaction at school. And what do you do if you, if they don't know they have a reaction, they're not going to have enough enough for an auto injector. But absolutely, um, you know, it's similar with AEDs. Heaven forbid there's a, you know, a sudden cardiac arrest at school, but oftentimes it's not just going to be a student who will benefit from having that life-saving medication or device. Mm-hmm. Well, as you mentioned, the on the federal level, it was more encouragement for states to enact these laws, and thus each state really has its own legislation. M- much of there's a lot of overlap between them. We'll talk about some of that nuance soon. But do we know how many states actually have mandatory stock epinephrine laws that say every school and early early childhood center has to have this? There's certainly a handful. I will I will say twelve, thirteen dozen ish, something like that. The reason I say ish, something like that is because when you really get into the weeds of what these statutes say, it typically has, this is required pending funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if the legislature does not provide funding, then it is no longer required. <laughs> um, so it's very interesting to to read reviews about what, what states have what legislation. And what I encourage you to do if you're listening to this and you want to get involved with, with writing stock epi, which you absolutely should, it's incredibly rewarding, um, is look at your actual state law. Do not trust what anybody else says. Go and look at your state's law and see, okay, what does my state permit? And also some local, um, there are some local regulations too, like in New York City for child care, there is um, local regulations. So, so check your, your local law. Don't listen to what other people say. <laughs> no, I think that's great advice. And more importantly, as I'm um, telling you what you know, to do, don't listen to what I say. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you count, of course, but um, but also don't assume that um, just because there's there's legislation in your state that you, you know that school down the street automatically has their stock epi. We're going to talk about you know some of the challenges in that, but yeah, don't make any assumptions that oh no, it's going to be fine. They'll have their own epinephrine or things oh, like that. Oh, heaven to Betsy, Dave, you got <laughs> nail on the head. We all know what happens well, let, when you assume. No, don't rah. assume that just because it's required. I'm putting air quotes. I know this is a, a podcast, but I'm you know making quotes with my fingers. Just because something is required by law does not necessarily mean that it's actually happening. So yeah, check check with your your local school. See what, get engaged. See what's happening. Yes. Well, let's break it down a little bit. So, what are some of the main elements that most of the states include in their stock epinephrine legislation? So, what what do they say that these are the at least minimum requirements that need to be in place? Okay, so some of the first verbiage that you'll see is either shall or may, and that's really going to lay out whether or not this is required or this is permitted. So that's kind of your first fork in the road. And then it's going to get into what is stock epinephrine. Um, it'll typically have it, it's an epinephrine auto injector. Some laws do not necessarily lay out that it's an auto injector. And I have worked with a state in the past that the legislation did not lay out that it's an auto injector. And so then when, um, 
this this particular state, it's required that the schools have stock epinephrine. The law does not say auto injector. So then when there was an issue with an auto injector program getting auto injectors to schools, then they were relying on, were relying on vials of epinephrine and syringes, to which if you're an allergist and you're listening to this, you're cringing right now, right? Yes. So uh, we were able to work with a different auto injector company, um, and I have no support by any auto injector companies. Um, we were worked, able to work with a different auto injector company to, to, to support those schools and get them a safe option. Um, and so that, Dave, what was, what was the question? Please note, I had a baby 11 weeks ago. So oh my gosh. I'm working I did not on know little that. sleep. Um, and I just went off on a tangent on my own, on my own podcast. I go off on tangents all the time. Um, but, oh, oh, so what else is in the law? What else is in the law? Um, so you have that first decision tree of is it required or is this a may? Per, it's permitted. Um, and then is it an auto injector? We all want it to be an auto injector. Um, and then who can use it? And what sort of training do they need to use it? And what sort of indemnification is there? Meaning if a staff member who is trained on using the device recognizes someone having anaphylaxis, they in good faith think that's happening and they use the device, can they be in trouble? Most of the laws indemnify the staff members who are trained. Most of the laws indemnify the prescriber. Most of the laws indemnify the prescriber. Most of the laws <laughs> indemnify the prescriber, y'all. So we as prescribers, won't be held liable if god forbid there is a bad outcome now of course if someone uses an auto injector as a weapon the laws do not indemnify that but that's about the only thing that is not indemnified with this legislation so those are the things that you want to look at in in your state code okay well congratulations on your on your new little one um what's their name thank you walter oh walter is walter sleeping yeah, right now or little... is walter on your lap <laughs> Walter is sleeping. Walter is often on my lap, though. So whenever I um, do local interviews or podcasts, sometimes Walter makes a little appearance, just like little Adelaide used to make appearances, <laughs> who is now three. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, well, congratulations again. Um, Thank you. Do, do, we ha do we have any data or evidence regarding implementation of, of these stock epinephrine laws and how many schools or districts have participated in these programs? Not on a state level. There are um, some some lovely studies of fan by fantastic people across the country who do get involved in what's going on in their school districts. Um, but there are not robust studies, neither in states that require nor permit of what sort of implementation is really going on. Even though in in a lot of the laws, and I I should have put this in in my last answer but I'm clearly sleep deprived. A lot of the laws do say that there has to be um, a reporting mechanism, typically to a Department of Health. Mm -hmm. um, but but that doesn't always that doesn't always occur. Um, so unfortunately, we don't we don't get to see all of that data because um, it's not being it's not being reported. But that is something that that we are working on. Yeah, you know, and um, I've been along with yourself and many others. I've been working on this in my own state. Oh my gosh, for seven years now and that was one of the things from the beginning of just we need to be able to track this on some level to, to get a better understanding mm -hmm. of where the where the holes are um because we're talking mm -hmm. about you know these states are huge and the counties there's such uh, disparities in regards to um you know access and things like that so i'm glad that you're working on that but oh boy that is such a a major um, one of the things missing in my opinion right and dave i'll give a plug for my nonprofit. um 
Code Anna, CodeAnna.org, and we equip schools for medical emergencies like anaphylaxis. And I mean, just like you, I can't tell you how many stock epi prescriptions that I've written. Um, and Code Anna is the one that helps facilitate all of that to make sure that they're trained and they're able to get a prescriber in their state. Um, I actually still have my Ohio license because I still, and I'm in Louisiana now, because I still prescribe up there um, to, to help get these devices, not just into schools, but also into non-school entities. Um, mm. And just to take a step back for a second, if you're looking at your state's um, legislation to figure out where you can prescribe to for stock epi, typically states have stock epi legislation for schools and then non-school entities. So that's sort of a, a fork in the road there too. And a non-school entity will often include early child care centers, so pre-Ks, but then also universities. So when we're talking about school stock epi, we're typically talking about kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, it's also important to note that kindergarten through 12th grade are the schools that qualify for EpiPens for schools which right now is the only, uh, at the time of this podcast at least, it's the only school program that's providing EpiPens, uh, specifically EpiPens, to schools at no cost. There are other um, public access programs that are available where schools can get them at um, lesser cost than what we all hear about in the media of these hundreds or thousands of dollars. Um, but yeah, just just if you're interested in writing stock epi, I keep coming back to that because it's just so important, Dave. You know that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just so important. So there are ways to get these devices. So let, let's expand upon that if we can. So who is who's in charge of paying for these? Let's say uh, for whatever reason they don't want to participate in the EpiPen for Schools program. Does the school district themselves can they just pay for these? Um, you know, go to the pharmacy and pick them up. Are there advocacy groups? Uh, you mentioned your nonprofit. But what other avenues can can schools look towards, or can more importantly listeners uh, direct schools towards if they have trouble paying for these? So the first thing you want to try is that EpiPens for schools. And if you're K through 12, then you should be able to qualify for two pairs of auto injectors. And uh, depending on what age groups you have in your school, so if it's a lower elementary, you might want to do one junior, not junior, right? We don't like to say that. One zero point five. 0.15, sorry, and one 0.3 auto injector mm -hmm. pair. If your high school do two 0.3 pairs. Um, but if you don't qualify for that for whatever reason, then you want to look at public access programs with some of the um, distributors with medical purchasing solutions. You want to get with a local group that is doing this or reach out to Codeana um, or any of us really um, who, who are doing things on more of a national scale to help facilitate that because that's absolutely one of the biggest questions is doctors want to know are they going to get sued and then they want to know well where can they get these right um, mm -hmm. but they can also old school write the prescription on a sheet of paper you you write the prescription out actually to the school because it's stock epinephrine so it's going out to little oak elementary school it's not being written to the nurse of the school assuming the school even has a nurse, but it's mm -hmm. going to the actual school. And then they can take it to Target Pharmacy, to Walgreens, to fill in the blank. A lot of times, though, I will tell you, the pharmacies are not as up to date on the stock epi legislation. So they're going to be like, you want me to fill what? Mm -hmm. um, which is why actually right now I'm working with Dr. Andrea Pasquardo on an amazing stock epi and stock albuterol toolkit that's going to have some of this information in it. Um, but also, I know you're going to plug the online course that we have available right now um, through the Quad AI mm -hmm. for CME credit that walks you through all this. But yeah, you write out the prescription 
to the school, they can take it to, to Target, wherever, and also use that, this is, this is it, use the GoodRx. Um, whatever that uh, discount is at that time, go to GoodRx.com and type in EpiPen and see, okay, Target has it for $107.99 right now for a two-pack. And yeah, it's still $107.99, but that's still significantly less than if you're just going there and just saying, hey, I have this prescription. So those are some ways that you can get these devices for less than the hundreds or thousands of dollars that we hear about. Oh, those are such great practical tips for everybody. Um, but I, it It's keeps, very in I, the weeds tips. Yes, it's very yeah. in the weeds tips. Well, it, it's, the logistics, that's where everything always gets hung up, right? So this is really Totally, important. totally. Um, but I keep hearing you say that it requires a prescription, and it sounds like schools are completely dependent on having a clinician who's willing to prescribe the epinephrine for their school. So what resources exist to help connect these schools? You mentioned not all of them even have school nurses, for our listeners who aren't aware. Um, that's a huge problem. Um, there, there's very few schools, percentage-wise, that actually have a full-time nurse in every building uh, within their district, right. So, let alone having a physician within their district. So what resources exist to connect schools that don't have their own physician with willing participants in their community? I would say one of the biggest resources is Codana because you can just send us an email and they'll and Sarah Jane, our director, is, is if if we don't know somebody and I'll ask somebody who knows somebody in that state. But chances, I mean, allergy world is small, right? I mean, mm. people listening to this, we're all across we're all across the world. So um, that's one way to do it. Another way, so if if you're a if you're a prescriber and you want to know if the school has a prescriber, you can just ask the principal. Um, and then if they don't, then you can be the prescriber. But if you're a parent and you're like, I need to find somebody, you can check with your health department and see if they're interested. Some local health departments will do this. Some state health departments will do this. There's tremendous heterogeneity across the country about who is prescribing and what. And that's why it's so important for us as allergists to really own this, in my opinion, and get involved with our local schools. It's a beautiful way to give back. And it's, it's also relatively easy. Once you've done it once, you're like, oh, well, that was easy. I can do this a million times. Because mm -hmm. again, the indemnification is there. And it's really just signing your name a few times for a prescription and then also the standing order protocol. That's one of the other forms that, that you'll have. But those are some of the resources is, is Code Anna, any of your academy colleagues who are involved in, in this work, Dave, you, myself, um, I can think of some others, right? Um, reach, you know, just reach out to us and, and we can help. Do you know of other resources that are actively connecting prescribers with, with schools? I do not. Um, I know. I think that's one of the other, um, you know, major holes in, in all this this legislation yeah. of just we don't have a way of connecting people. It really does take a little bit of proactive effort on our parts, um, mm -hmm. and uh, which is fine. I mean, I think it's easy to do. That's what I've done in our community. Uh, whenever, mm -hmm. if there's ever, um, you know, a regional school health. Uh, conference. Um, they love having mm -hmm. allergists present on all kinds of information. And, and anytime you get, even if they ask you to give a talk on asthma, talk about stock epinephrine. Uh, put that plug in. Let yes. them make them aware of it and, and let them know oh, I love uh, that, that it's available. That's awesome. That's well, a great tip. I love that. You've mentioned this just a couple of times so far, but uh, just to be clear, I, you know, what advice do you have for our colleagues who still may be reluctant to write these prescriptions for any reason, especially if they're worried about being liable if the epinephrine is given incorrectly or causes adverse effects? You know, how can we how can we get people to better understand like it's it's going to be okay? Um, listen to this podcast again. Number one, put it on repeat. <laughs> number two, um, feel send me an email drhoyt at hoytallergy dot com um, and 
actually, I mean, you know, in medicine, we're all about see one, do one, teach one, right? And so take the online course at, through the academy and you'll see, okay, what, what does all this really entail? And that online course is beautiful. It really walks you through the legislation involved because that's what we're all worried about, right? We're all worried about getting sued. The other thing we're worried about is how much time is this going to take? And if you're able yourself to read the legislation, right, because we also don't trust anybody. We're doctors. We want to see it for ourselves, review the evidence for ourselves, right? So we, through the course, it walks you through how to find your legislation, how to read it, what to look for, which is we kind of already talked about that in the podcast, too, a little bit. But then it walks you through, okay, these are the forms that you can either expect to receive from a school nurse or a principal, or these are the forms that the school will need. They might not know it, but this is what they'll need. Um, and that'll be the prescription. That'll be the standing order protocol. And all these things we already have for you. So Codeana has already made these. We have given them to the academy to use in the course. We're using them in the Stock Abbey Toolkit that we're that we're making with Dr. Papillardo. Um, and you have everything. So see one, do one, teach one. So have one of your Quad AI colleagues who is prescribing stock epi walk you through how to do it the first time. And then you'll be like, oh, wow, this is easy. Okay. Then another school inevitably is going to come out of the woodwork and want you to write it. Um, or a parent is going to want you to write it for the school. And so then you're going to talk with the school about it. And you have you have all all of the ducks in the row at that point. You've you've done it all before, and you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. This is easy. No, I think that's great. And personally, um, if I may share, I just um, when I reach out to the schools, and this this takes years to kind of build to cultivate these relationships, but they all have my email address, mm -hmm. and now they just email me. They mm -hmm. have the forms. They download them from the website or whatever. They send them to me, and then I print them out and I sign them. And I scan them back in and send them right back. And it really it's it's just a matter of minutes. Um, it's easy, so, right? Yeah. It is. It's it easy. is easy. It's easy. And the law is there to protect you. And there, there are organizations to make sure that, that they're trained. Because that's the other thing. It's like, oh, well, how do I know that they're really well trained? Well, if it's a nurse requesting it from you, then, then you can kind of sleep a little bit better, right? But still, everybody needs an update in anaphylaxis, right? I mean, we just did the, the updates for the 2023 anaphylaxis practice parameters update. There's always new coming out on anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. So, Having, but having a nurse helps you sleep a little bit better. But then there's all these really great training resources. Codeana, uh, National Association of School Nurses, FAIR, you know, all these groups have stuff that you can recommend to the school to make sure that those other people, not just the nurse who are going to use that stock epi, are trained on how to recognize and respond to anaphylaxis, including how to use that auto injector. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you, and you know, it's one thing I've heard from colleagues of like, they don't want to be involved in developing a new treatment plan or a protocol or things mm -hmm. like that. So do prescribers actually have to develop these for each school or can they just no, sign off on something no. that the school sends them? Well, so if the school sends you something, read every line of it, every mm -hmm. line of it before you sign your name to it, right? Um, and in, in lieu of that, I would encourage you to provide your own content, specifically your own standing order protocol, which is in that course on the Academy's website. Um, and it, it's a standing order protocol, which you're kind of like, well, what's the standing order protocol compared to the prescription? They look kind of similar. Well, the prescription is more like getting the prescription, how many dispense, all that, right? But the standing order protocol really sort of goes through when to use the device and how to use the device. It's more in-depth. So have those, have those forms ready that you have already reviewed that you are very comfortable signing immediately and provide those. Epipen for schools will provide these to the school. Um, and so the school will then give them to you. 
So if, if I may, I'll just walk you through that process because that's how a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of schools will reach out is they'll say, Hey, we want to do everything for schools and we need a prescriber. You say, absolutely. So the school logs in um, to the Everything's for Schools program. They will download the, the forms to get signed. They will send you those forms. Those forms are a prescription and a standing order protocol. And so you sign that, you send it back to them, just as you said, and then you're done. Um, the other thing that some prescribers like to have is an MOU, is a Memorandum of Understanding. It's not legally binding, but what it really does is it just lays out the responsibilities of the prescriber and then also the school or the school district. So it just, in my opinion, it clarifies the relationship, it clarifies the expectations um, on both parties, but it's really, it's not something that is required, um, especially because we have the legislation, and I keep coming back to that, we have the legislation that really protects us when we are doing this really great community service. Mm-hmm. It, it really is a great community service. And- you make this just sound so easy. Uh, and like you said, well, um, <laughs> see one, do one, teach one. Yeah. What What are some of the other details that maybe we haven't covered uh, thus far, common questions that you receive about this from colleagues of the schools that you've worked with? Um, so some of the questions are, well, um, are being posed to the prescriber. And so how do you respond to that is, well, what if I give the medication and they didn't really need it, right? Or how many times mm-hmm. have we as allergists heard that Epi was given, and then they went to the emergency room, and then the emergency room physician said, oh, they probably didn't need it. Or somebody along the way said they didn't really need that Epi, and we're all like, no, do not feed that doubt, because we all know that when anaphylaxis is promptly recognized and promptly treated with an epinephrine auto-injector, that the symptoms resolve like super fast in most cases, right? And it's pretty amazing. And I know many of us listening to the podcast have, have seen that, have seen the Epi work so fast and it's so relieving, right? Because anytime you're giving epi, nobody's nobody is 100% calm when they're giving epi, right? We're giving mm-hmm. epi because they're having a severe allergic reaction. And so when we see that person within, you know, 90 seconds, less than that oftentimes, really just that look in their face change, then start less impending doom, more I'm feeling better. It's amazing. It's amazing, right? And so when I hear that, oh, well, the ER, the ER, somebody or other said little Johnny really didn't need that epi. They looked so good. Then I say, you know what? They looked good because it was potentially that epi that saved their life, right? Because you administered it promptly and they, they started feeling better. Their symptoms improved. It's because of that epi that they looked so good. So in my opinion, that really underscores the importance of promptly recognizing anaphylaxis and administering epinephrine. So that's probably one of the biggest things. Um, one of the biggest questions I get from schools um, and one of the, the questions I get from colleagues, like, how do I respond to that? Um, another question I get and, and guide my colleagues on how to respond is inevitably when somebody when you're when you're talking to the school about anaphylaxis and someone raises their hand and says, well, little Lily in in fourth grade, her mom swears that she she can't even be in the same room as peanut. And also on her mm-hmm. action plan, it says she has to have. 50 milligrams of Benadryl, your favorite medicine, Dave, <laughs> before she gets epinephrine. How, what do I do about this? So then you pause because that's the question we're all getting. We're all like wringing our, our hair, right? And our, and so you have to stop and separate administering stock epinephrine from following a student's pres- physician prescribed anaphylaxis action plan. So there's mm-hmm. another fork. Like, is this, are we responding to a child? with a known allergy who has an action plan, or are we responding to a child who, this is kind of out of the blue, right? In in many ways, if it's out of the blue, then the protocol, you follow the protocol, it's, it's less gray area. 
But if you have an action plan on a kiddo, if a school has an action plan on a kiddo that does not make sense medically, it really puts the school in a difficult position. And so what I encourage my my colleagues when they're asked that question is sort of, I encourage them to answer with two parts. Like one, for the student, you got to separate, or is this a student with a known or known unknown allergy who has an action plan or not? If they don't have an action plan, they don't have a known allergy, then bam, you're following the stock epi protocol. But if they have a known allergy, then really before we get to that point, ideally, like when this, this teacher is asking this question, you want to review that action plan with the parent and make sure that that parent and that, that student is plugged in with a board certified allergist. And if you still have questions about that student's anaphylaxis action plan, then that school should be able to get into, in touch with that physician to answer that question. And I know we're all like, oh, well, sometimes, you know, it's so hard to get in touch with a doctor. Like, I totally get that. But when it comes to allergists, I hope everybody here listening, um, if you're listening to this, then then you're engaged in this anyway. This matters to you. You're invested. So I, I'm not worried about you responding to schools. But whenever a school is reaching out to us, then we've got to respond promptly. We've got to be able to have that phone call with that school nurse and clarify what that what that action plan is. And if that action plan is is not consistent, so if the school is saying, well, this isn't really making sense, then the school really needs to have a way to talk with the parent and encourage the parent to, to help get clarity on what the action plan really is. Mm. That was a really long answer, Dave. Sorry. No, oh, no, in there's the a lead. lot of layers. A lot of layers to this. So it's good. Well, all right, here, let me ask you another hard question. So let's say that uh, we have um, parents and caregivers out there listening and they, and they say to themselves, this is fantastic. Uh, if my child's school already has stock epinephrine, I can save myself $300 and not fill the prescription send it to school with them. What, what, what would you say to those caregivers? Oh. So it, it sounds really nice, right? But ultimately, there are a few issues with that. One, I would never trust anybody else to have the life-saving medication that my child needs. I'll never trust anybody other than myself or trusting my child when my child is old enough to self-carry. And, and even then, I mean, I can't even imagine. My kids are young. Um, so, so we don't want to trust somebody else to have a life-saving medication, right? Um, kids who have um, arrhythmias and are at risk of death, they, they get defibrillators. They get implanted defibrillators. They don't just trust that the school is going to have an AED to, to fix the problem once it happens. Um, by the way, my husband is a pediatric cardiologist, so we have interesting dinner time discussions. But so that's <laughs> one thing, right? The other thing, and Dave, I know that this is, we have so much overlap. I know that this is something that, that you're passionate about is, is really the transitioning a child from the pediatric care model to the adult care model. And, you know, I mean, we can put EpiPens on school buses. We can put EpiPens everywhere that a kid who has food allergy is. But that is still failing that child if we are not teaching that child how to be responsible for their medical condition. And when it comes to food allergy, being responsible for your medical condition means having your medication, your emergency life-saving medication available to you at all times, right? And so we have to start teaching our children when they're young, they need to carry this medication. And that is something that if you're a parent and you're listening to this, that you absolutely want to have that discussion with your allergist even when when they're little toddlers when they start talking okay what do i teach my toddler about their food allergy do i want to tell them that this could kill them what sort of anticipatory guidance right are we as allergists providing to parents we've got to provide guidance that teaches the parent and teaches the kiddo that ultimately 
it's there's nothing magical that happens at 18 that they're suddenly adults and they know how to do all this we have to teach them all that along the way it has to be age appropriate meet milestones all of that and so if we're just saying oh well we'll just have stock up at the school and we don't have to we don't have to worry about it 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 is a it is it might be a short term oh that might help some you know a, a financial situation but ultimately that's going to fail our kids because they're not going to learn the importance of them being responsible and having that device on them. No, I, well stated. And just to go back to what we discussed at the very beginning of this, don't assume anything. There's a lot of loopholes yeah. here. There's a, you know, the Swiss cheese model, there's a lot of holes and sometimes they're going to line up. Mm -hmm. And if you're counting on your school uh, to have that available and, and if they don't uh, at the moment that you need it, uh, that's when um, bad things can happen. So yeah, I agree right. with you. Right. Well, let's go back to this online course that you helped develop through the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Um, where can people find it? Uh, can they get CME for it? How long is it? And what additional information can they learn by watching it? Now, that was like a seven-part question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, you can log into your Quad AI account and go to the professional development and education. Um, we have amazing education staff for the academy. They have, we have wonderful people that work with the academy. Um, and 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 search for the course for epinephrine and how and when to use, how and why to prescribe stock epinephrine. And yeah, you get CME credit. I believe it's an hour. Um, you can email me and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but it should be like 1.0. And um, it's just, it's so, I wrote it to be very tactical, very practical. I had a wonderful people collaborating with me in writing it. So school nurses, other allergists, um, so that it could really be a, a, a course that it, it, it's not, it's not a 40,000 foot like overview. It is in the weeds, just like this discussion. It is going to answer your questions on, on how and why to do this so that you feel equipped to do it. Is it uh, just like kind of like a webinar that was pre-recorded, or what can people expect when they log into it? There, there's um, a short video in the beginning, but it really is more interacting, interactive of reading text and then answering some mm. some fun interactive questions as you go through. There's downloadables, um, there's great links and resources. Um, so I would say that for being a self-paced course, it's still very engaging and interactive. And um, my email address, I think, is littered throughout so that you can really just reach out to me if you have questions. Oh, I love it. The, the active uh, learning style. It's fantastic. Um, our audience might not be aware of this, or now they, they may assume so. Uh, because of um, you know how eloquently you're speaking here, but you host a podcast yourself, which is called Food Allergy and Your Kiddo. Why did you get started yeah. in podcasting, and, and what do you enjoy most about it? So podcasting is so much fun because you can just sit here and talk with you know your friend, your your allergist, your you know I, I get to interview amazing people. Um, and Dr. Anna Novak Wegerin came on um, and just did an amazing, amazing overview of FPIs. And so I started it because I found myself having the same discussions with parents over and over and over in my clinic. And I really wanted them to have access to information that was still evidence-based, but really tailored towards families and written in a way um, or, or discussed in a way that is warm and you know lighthearted, but still gets to the heart of the matter. Um, and so that's what I'm able to do with food allergy and your kiddo. And you've been on it. It's an excellent mm -hmm. e episode. Um, and you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm able to 
like ask, ask my friends, my allergist friends and all these other people who are allergists that I actually don't know, but I will reach out to you because you are an expert in this, that, or the other. And look, these food allergy families, y'all all know this, they are smart, you know? I mean, they are looking for the journal articles. And so I really started it as, as a way to connect all these just like amazing, super smart allergy people and advocates with families who who are wanting this type of information, but they, they couldn't really find a, a place to really find it all. And so that's what, what food allergy in your kiddo is, the place to find family-focused, evidence-based resources. Oh, that's great. Is it mainly designed towards parents and caregivers, or do you think that healthcare professionals can learn some new information as well? Absolutely. It is for, for it is, is for families, right? It's food allergy in your kiddo, but I know a lot of allergists who do listen to it and they tell me all the time that they're getting new things out of it. My co-host is one of my very good friends from actually when we were teenagers and she happens to have now, she happens to have a, a, a now teenager who has a peanut allergy. And so it's me as the food allergist and it's Pam as the food allergy mom it's, I think it's fun to listen to us because sometimes we're, we're goofballs, but it also brings very good multiple perspectives, especially when we have guests on to have really a nice um, multifaceted discussion. So absolutely um, allergists, I think, get, get, get some good information out of it. And where can our listeners find your podcast if they're interested? Well, thank you for asking at foodallergyandyourkiddo.com. All right. Um, well, you know, as we wrap, we wrap up our conversation, I always like to allow our listeners the opportunity to learn a little bit more about our guests. Would that be okay with you? Sure. All right. So easy questions as we near the end. What is your preferred vacation? Would you rather relax on a beach or discover new cities? And the follow-up is, do you have a favorite spot that you either can't wait to get back to or you have already been multiple times? Yes, yeah, so I'm definitely the beach person. I like to just go and unplug and just sit there with my thoughts. Um, there, there are some beautiful beaches in Georgia, um, a short coastline, but a beautiful coastline that um, my family and I travel to a few times per year. And then I'm also, I'm a big fan of, of Disney World, Fort Wilderness, those little cabins. Oh, I could, yeah, that would be great to go there now. Ride around a little golf, golf cart, take the little boat to Magic Kingdom, you know. So now I, now I have multiple follow-ups. So first, have you been to the beach now <laughs> with your young children since they've been born? Um, have not gone with little Walter. We haven't really gone anywhere with little Walter yet. Yeah. Yet. Um, but we've well, gone to the beach with little Adelaide. And it's so fun. You know, she's three now. And every time we go, she, you know, she's clearly a different age. And just her, it's like she rediscovers it every time as, you know, as, as a little bit older. And it's just amazing to watch that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, what I was going to say was my in my experience, when our children were young, I no longer found the beach to be very relaxing because it was very much like, oh, my gosh, where are they, where are they doing? Where are they going? <laughs> don't let them go in the water, right? Don't go in the water. There's a giant ocean, but don't go in it. It's like the ultimate like tease, right? And then um, we recently, was it recently? It was last, last year, um, we took Adelaide uh, with my parents to Disney for the first time. And that was very special because my parents took my brother and me to Disney when we were young and growing up and so it was really nice to go with my parents oh that's so great and did you partake in the hoop doo review since you love fort wilderness <gasps> okay dave not only have i partaken in the hoop doo review but 
they have called me up on stage for the Hoop TT oh. review, and I have been that can can dancer. Why am I not surprised? Twice. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> it's so fun. It is so fun. And and you know, I mean, Disney does food allergy real well. Disney has some bad press going on lately. No comment. Um, but they do food allergy very well. And so I I I when my family tell me they're looking for somewhere safe to take their kids and they're really on edge about food, it's hard to not recommend Disney. Yeah, no, I, from personal experience and as well as from the families that I, I, I care for, they, they all mm-hmm. say the same thing. They, they really do. They do a great job. Well, uh, next question. What advice would your current self, with all of your infinite wisdom and experience, give to your former self when you were a fellow in training? This can be life advice. This can be professional advice. Anything you can think of. I would say don't be afraid to take the load less traveled, right? The road less traveled. Um in in fellowship, I was very blessed to be at a program where they they didn't just encourage you to think outside the box. They basically required you to think outside the box. And so when I had some cool bench research going on, also had some some cool community outreach going on that they could tell I was very passionate about. These very scientific NIH, you know, fancy smart people, and and ultimately they were just so encouraging of me pursuing the outreach that I was doing and growing Code Anna, which is now, you know, a national organization that serves thousands of people. And um, I would just say, you know, don't don't be afraid of that um, past Alice. Like, go for <laughs> it and, and be confident and be, pat, you know, let your passion through, even if it is something that is different from what other people do. And actually, you know, in the bouquet of life, it's nice to be different. Um, it, it adds it adds more to a program, I would say, to have these different interests and these different passions and different areas of expertise. That's great. Okay, last one. Do you have a, a favorite book that you either gift um, very, very often to others or recommend for others to read? I do. It's called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Dave. Mm, no. um, it's written by an FBI negotiator. And uh, our former FBI negotiator. And the whole point of it is, you know, you, you, you can't really just go into to whatever negotiations a compromise. You're probably like, whoa, this this interview took a funny turn. Why is she talking about negotiating? Every conversation that we have with our patients is some form of a negotiation, right? We have to make sure that we are all on the same page in order for them to move forward with our treatment plan. And how we communicate that is important. And so this book really teaches you how to how to communicate, how to effectively get your point across so that the team hears you and goes in the direction that you know is right to go and that's why it's never split the difference you're not just going to do it's not a win if only half of the plan gets put into place you need your whole plan to get put into place right but it needs to be done through shared decision making which i know dave you're also a big fan of shared decision making so yeah never split the difference it's also good for contract negotiations with their fellows you know (laughs) in this day and age you know um You've just you've got to you've got to be able to communicate and advocate for yourself, and so I, I love that book, and it's great on audiobook too. And I just oh. randomly listen to bits and pieces of it. That's fantastic. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm going to download it today. Oh well, Dr. Hoyt, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Uh, I think this was a great conversation. We're going to put the link to the um, online course uh, in the show notes for those who access it through the website. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we depart? No, God bless you, Dave. Thank you for having me on.
No, it's been our pleasure. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.